for the second time in only one year, Paris is victim of Islamic fundamentalist. Do you think we'll ever learn anything? I woke up this morning Had a burning deep inside Like when you're feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain There's hunger and despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching We're back for another episode of Left at the Valley. My name is Kevin. I am your host. Joining me as usual. Hi, Nancy. How you doing? Hey, Kevin. Hi, guys. Hi. And we have with us our friend Jim. And with us, of course, we have local artists John and Chris. Welsh. Welsh, of course. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Oh, God. You guys are so loud. Perfect. Uh, we were supposed to do a show today about um, myth of sexual addiction with Dr. Del Rey. But in light of what has happened in the past week of the events in Paris, I think today we're going to do a show of France versus Islam. No, no. France versus ISIS. Or maybe, you know, how would we word this? France, France and, and Islam. Islam. There we go. Fair enough. <laughs> or France versus ISIS. I almost said France and ISIS. <laughs> Thank so. you so much for being here. Thank uh, you. Before we get into all this, um, you know, we had a we had a contest where we uh, we were giving out the a manual for creating atheists, and we're pleased to announce we received actually three more books. So we're going to proceed differently. Uh, this time, we, I'm going to give out a secret password. So if you listen to the show, just remember the word epistemology. And if you send me that on Facebook or you send me that by email at leftadvalleyatoutlook.com, we will send you one of those three copies. And will you accept any spelling of that word? <laughs> uh, well, I'll try your best anyway. A plus for effort. I, I wanted to quickly chat as, as well. Uh, um, I went to see uh, yesterday the film Spotlight. Have you got, are you guys familiar with that film? It just came out. It's the movie about uh, the uh, team of reporters from the Boston Globe. That really uncovered the whole scandal, the sex scandal from the priest from the Catholic Church in oh. Boston. It's a fantastic film. I highly, highly recommend mm. you guys all mm. watch this. I think it really like ninety-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got great actors, Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo, uh, which I uh, love. Michael Keaton, and you know, if you guys haven't seen it, you totally need to see this. And especially us as skeptics and atheists, it's totally worth the while. We should almost analyze this in a show. Uh, anything else you guys want to chat about before we go into our usual? Two points. One, ISIS is the Roman god for sex, right? So, okay. So, <laughs> addiction to sex, and now we're going to be talking about ISIS. I guess and there is an that's irony. Next show. There's a literal that's irony the there. And okay, next show. <laughs> and it's funny you say that because me and John played a show, a Halloween show, and one of the ladies was dressed up as the goddess ISIS to kind of. With all that ISIS thing happening. Yeah. Really? And it was kind of interesting because she's like, this is a different take. ISIS was actually Egyptian. Yeah, yeah that's Egyptian. what I thought. That's what I thought. Well, mm-hmm. that's, all, that's all ISIS. Oh, <laughs> that's a different. It makes me think of Aladdin like Arabian Nights. Remember that? <laughs> must, be, must be difficult to perform on stage when you have a beautiful worn parade. Well, like that. <laughs> the difficult <laughs> part was <laughs> there was a guy dressed up as Ron Jeremy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> In, a, in like a baby diaper dressed up like Miley Cyrus with um, a big cannonball. Oh, goodness. And it was pretty distracting. So. Uh, but that was a distracting part. So. 
This is going to be a great show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nancy. Well, well you might as well take it away. Here we go. This day in history which, as we know by now, is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the dates between November the 9th and November the 22nd. Starting with November the 9th, it was World Freedom Day. And in 1861, no relationship to World Freedom Day, but 1861 was the first documented football match in Canada played at University College in Toronto. So that's how far back we go. Uh, November the 10th is Heroes Day in Indonesia. And uh, on November 10th in 1793, interesting that we're talking about France today, um, because that day was when France ended forced worship of God. Interesting. The time, yeah, the timing. That's wow. So they, it was a revolution, and they had new policies. And uh, the policies of uh, dechristianization waged mm. against, was waged against Catholicism and then eventually against all forms of Christianity. So they confiscated church lands. They destroyed the statues, plates, and other iconography from places of worship. Um, the institution of revolutionary and civic cults, including cult of reason and uh, cult of the supreme being, um, it was, was brought in in their place. And then in uh, uh, 1793, October 21st, uh, they were all non, non-juring priests and all persons who harbored them liable to death on site. So they were pretty... That's a, that's a, that was a backlash, obviously, because the church has always been on the side of monarchy, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the backlash from the but, people. Exactly. But the, the, the extreme measures, when yeah. you think about ISIS and now, and you think about... That November the 10th was when France did the same thing against Catholicism. It, it's pretty eerie, you know, that, that, that it's sort of an anniversary of sorts. Um, November the 11th, of course, we all know was um, Remembrance Day and Veterans Day. We all wore our poppies. Um, and in 1930, this is really one of these little, remember this, everybody, because this is this is bound to come out as a as a trivia that you can you can use to impress. 1930, and there was a refrigerator that received a patent, and the ref- the people who put together this particular refrigerator that got the patent was Albert Einstein and a friend of his who was a Hungarian named Leo Szard. And they named it the Einstein Refrigerator. Who knew? Who knew that? Who knew? Imagine if you had one of those today in your basement somewhere. Oh, man. Well, they started in 1926 and worked until 1933. um, And they collaborated on ways to improve home refrigeration technology. And they were motivated by contemporary newspaper reports of a Berlin family who had been killed when a seal in their refrigerator broke and leaked toxic fumes into their home. So Einstein used the experience he had gained during his years, believe it or not, I didn't know this, at the Swiss Patent Office. Did you know that Einstein worked at the Swiss? Yes, yes, that's where, he, oh. yeah, that's where he formulated his, his theory as well. Uh, man, do I ever feel like I need this? Tr- Thank goodness I'm doing this. I'm learning. <laughs> I know, because we see all those fake comments about Einstein, and we don't know what he actually did or said, right? Yeah, well, it, it, according to, to, the, to the article, um, he worked at the patent office for those to apply for valid patents and for their inventions in several countries. So Einstein and his partner 
granted, were granted 45 patents in their names for three different models. It was not immediately put into commercial production, uh, and the most promising mm. of their, their uh, patents being quickly brought up by the Swedish company Electrolux. Is that a tie-in? <laughs> that That's not only tie-in, but I will say um, that uh, I, Einstein actually came for, as a refugee, a Jewish refugee in the 30s to the United States, right. uh, fleeing the tyranny of Nazi Germany. Um, so, you know, that does kind of tie into what we're going to talk about later yeah. in terms of our judgments on refugees and what they can offer to our country. Everything's tied Absolutely. together. Absolutely, yeah. And November the 18th is uh, Independence Day in Latvia. And in 1978, everybody remember the Jonestown Massacre? Absolutely. And, well, that it was two years before I was born, so I don't remember it, but I certainly read about it. You certainly read about it in Guyana. And uh, it was the Reverend Jim Jones that had all of his followers drink a cyanide lace punch, which we all know today is drinking the Kool-Aid, which has been brought into popular culture because of that. Mm -hmm. And there were 913 people who drank the Kool-Aid, including 909 in Jonestown itself. Uh, And a lot, I'm sure, didn't go voluntarily. Um, He was an interesting character uh, with the people's Temple in 1955 in Indianapolis, but um, there's a lot to be, you know, there are several books about uh, Jim Jones, and of course he's he's referred to still as, uh, you know, people who are have the ability to sway people, who, uh, converts who are extremely vulnerable. So he'd be anyway. a good Republican. Yeah, <laughs> he, pro- he probably was. November the 21st is. Here we go. No Music Day oh. and World <laughs> Hello Day. I don't know if there's any... <laughs> should, should I just cut the tune here? Hmm? I'll just cut the tune? Don't do it. No, no. no, no. <laughs> we got to go back, Marty. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe for a second. <laughs> the day has passed. Yeah. Um, and let me see. Let's, let's go on um, to a, 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 an event that is... One that is uh, written in, into history with um, uh, a degree of remembrance that uh, in, in our day and age is sort of written into, into, our, into our hearts and minds. And that, of course, is the assassination of um, John F. Kennedy in Dallas. And I'm going to break away for a minute uh, from, well, for more than a minute from our usual uh, objective reporting about what happens in history and I'm going to tell you my personal involvement with uh, the assassination of JFK in Dallas and I I hope it's interesting to to all of you because we don't always have a chance to play a part in current events and I did so it's nice you can say gee I know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody (laughs) at any rate oh for a second I thought you were saying you were personally involved in the assassination and I was thinking she was on the grass it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald it was a conspiracy yeah now now we can do away with all the conspiracies I did it (laughs) 
Anyway, let me take let me take you back for a minute. Um, Dallas was a, a very it, there's there's more interesting politics in Dallas and Texas than I think any other state of the union. And John F. Kennedy was coming to Dallas to mend some fences and also to prepare for the next election. And in those days in in Texas, there was only the Democratic Party. There was no Republican Party. There were the conservative Democrats and there were the liberal Democrats. Democrats. The conservative Democrats were yellow dog conservatives in that they'd rather vote for a yellow dog than be Republican. But the conservative Democrats were Republican, and they were extreme Republicans, almost to the level of um, uh, some of the right-wing conservatives today. Wow. And before uh, JFK came, they put ads in the paper on November the 22nd asking for uh, JFK uh, to be tried for treason. And it was in the, in the newspapers. And they, they placed ads that were absolute hate ads. And so the police and everyone else in Dallas were really afraid of the right-wingers in Dallas. And they were looking at people like Edwin Walker and others, the oil people, uh, Hunt, H.L. Hunt, and some of those who they thought would be um, at least picketing that might uh, speak out um, or, you know, put out pamphlets or do something to uh, interfere with the the luncheon in in Dallas. So all the alerts and all of the uh, investigations into possible um, uh, wrongdoing during the trip were directed toward the right wing. Ah. So it, it, it's really it's really interesting. No one ever thought that there would ever be you know someone from the left. It would be so impossible that I I don't think it was on on the radar. Mm-hmm. So the day started in the morning um, of the 22nd, and uh, Kennedy was actually in Fort Worth at a breakfast uh, meeting. And that's kind of been obscured in a little bit because everyone thinks of him going to the luncheon in Mm -hmm. Dallas. Uh, There were many school children who were off that day. Um, There were a lot of people in Dallas who were very liberal uh, Democrats, and the schools were semi-conservative, but a lot of the school wanted their children to be a part of that day. They knew they would probably never be able to see a a president, Hmm. a sitting president. So there were many school children that were off, and the crowds were really big, both in Dallas and Fort Worth, to see JFK. Surprisingly, Hmm. there there weren't the protest signs that people thought that they were going to see from, from the right wing. My husband at the time was a radio announcer and worked for a station, which was a radio station, a TV station, in, uh, it was right between Dallas and, and Fort Worth, um, called WBAP, and it was the NBC affiliate. He had the day off, so he took care of the three children. And I went Christmas shopping, and I had an item that I wanted to get that was on the other side of Fort Worth. We lived between Dallas and Fort Worth. So he took care of the kids. I headed off to a pawn shop, which happened to be 
and I really didn't realize it when I set off, but it was on the route that Kennedy and his party were going to take to go from downtown Fort Worth to Carswell Air Force Base to get on the plane for a 15- Hold on a second. Hold ahead. on a second. Okay. Are you telling me you do your shopping, your Christmas shopping at pawn shops? It, I did. I did a pawn shop because my husband wanted, I know, because my husband. <laughs> I just really wanted to press that. I no. know. I don't blame you. Can I give an excuse? <laughs> my husband wanted a banjo because he was a musician, and I had called all over, and the banjo he wanted was at the pawn. Am I redeemed a little bit? Because <laughs> it was yes. a musical instrument? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. I wish I had that banjo sound effect right now. You're yeah, redeemed because, you know, most uh, instruments at pawn shops, you know, are probably stolen from musicians or by musicians that have gone <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> so, so I went on, I went after the stolen banjo, and I was right on the route going to Carswell, because in those days they didn't have the freeways, because you can get to downtown Dallas, to downtown Fort Worth now in about 30 minutes, mm-hmm. but then it would take almost an hour. Besides, you know, he had to chance to use the military and it was more secure so when i got out of the the pawn shop there were um, crowds on on either side and i i suddenly realized where i was and who was coming and i thought oh my gosh and so i stood there and there this convertible came by and there was jack kennedy and i know and jacqueline kennedy in this beautiful pink suit that you've seen in all the pictures with the little hat and of course they turned and you could say they looked straight at me but you know looking at the crowd and my hand just went up involuntarily and i went oh my gosh you know and it was just thrilling to be able to see them so i headed out from the pawn shop did a little grocery shopping and got home about an hour and a half later, something like that. And as I walked in the front door, my children were running toward me saying, Mommy, 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 the president's been shot. The president's been shot. And in my mind, I thought, they're watching a movie about Lincoln. You know, that was the first mm, thing I thought. They're course. watching something about Lincoln's assassination. And I'm saying, uh-huh, okay, fine, that's great. And then my husband looked at <laughs> Like, that's amazing. <laughs> amazing, yeah. And so yeah. my husband looked at me and said, no, John F. Kennedy was shot. And I'm thinking, I was just about to share with you this wonderful experience that I'd had about seeing them pass me right by, and now... You know, this elation, Mm -hmm. suddenly I just dropped through the floor. And I thought, how could this, how could this be? And I told my, I said, I just saw him. I just saw him. Mm -hmm. And so he had the TV on and relayed, you know, the, the horrible, the horrible events. Well, at that point, everybody in Dallas, as, as well as the whole world, were glued to the TV. And we watched that day. Um, and then, uh, Oswald, from the uh, the school book depository, went to Oak Cliff, which is a suburb, shot um, Officer Tippett. They took him into custody, and um, he was brought to the Dallas jail, which was downtown Dallas. Well, there were a lot of the... um, uh, uh, We didn't have cable back then, but there were a lot of the network 
uh, reporters that were there, and they sent their high-level, Dan Rather was there, and the um, reporter from NBC was an extremely professional, competent guy whose name was Tom Pettit. Uh, he, he died, I think, in the, in the 70s, 80s, maybe a little longer, but he was, uh, he was a really first-rate great journalist and, and very well respected. And so he was doing the reporting for WBAP. Um, so Saturday, uh, it was a rehash of everything that was happened. And of course, Oswald was brought into custody and they had some uh, interviews with some of the police. All this is documented and it's easy, easy to see. Sunday morning, my husband went to work and I'm watching. I couldn't. I could not move. I mean, the tears. It was as though we had lost somebody personally. And as I'm watching, this was Sunday morning, the day that they were going to move Oswald from the jail to a more secure place. And the cameras were in the hallway, looking down to where the officers were going to take. Uh, Oswald and bring him down. Things were so naive back there. You, they covered everything. The route, the the uh, the route of the the parade. Everything was was well known to everybody. So here the cameras are trained. And Tom Pettit is giving the little background information. They're bringing him out and so forth. And all of a sudden, you hear the shot, and Tom Pettit doesn't miss a beat, and he says. Oswald has been shot. Oswald has been shot. And it's though he's looking at a tennis match, you know, and the ball's going back and forth. He yeah. was that professional oh, wow. and that and that cool. So, Do you think it in that uh, aspect, does it look like an inside job where he's like, and next up, Oswald has been shot? Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> it, it, like well, that. it was it, it, the man was such a consummate professional, yeah. and they were trained to do that. I mean, they, they were in war zones. They, yeah, you know, this okay, is something yeah. that... They, they can't you know, turn it off. They, they can't turn it off. You, 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 you yeah. can't put it off. So it's we, just we, like we, we can get you, to that you, later. You, um detach yourself it's like you're being a doctor or something in a way yeah. and, and 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 hold that hold that thought because that's going to be very prominent in in about five five minutes when i when i get to that point so i called my husband who was on the air as a, a news and disc jockey and i said oswald's been shot you've got to get it on the the air he said i can't what am i going to say my source is my wife who's watching television and at that point i hear the teletype and so he had a chance to get it on the get it on the news well all sunday now jack ruby um has been shot and so this is all in the news he was a very interesting interesting character uh and very well known to the police known he had two bars that were you know in the mm. sleazy side of town where all the cops hung out so he he's a story in, in uh, of himself uh, you know in and of himself monday uh when the the the, the breaking news was over most of the network reporters went back to New York. And so my husband and I went to WBAP to say farewell to Tom Pettit because they were having a little getaway, uh, you know, a little coffee for him and a little little farewell. So I was standing and, and listening to him, and, you know, I thought, 
gee, I, I really would, would like to say something to him. And I walked over and introduced myself. And I said, I, I know you must hear this all the time. I said, but I was so impressed with your reporting. I know how well trained you are, but when you were standing in that hallway, you know, ready to to talk about Oswald, and then the shot rang out, I said, you didn't miss a beat. You know, I was so impressed on how you kept your cool. And he laughed, and he looked at me, and he said, well... He said, let me tell you something. He said, when we were laying cable in the morning to set up all of the cameras and set up all of the equipment, there were people in that hallway we've never seen before. And we know everybody on the cruise, but there were people there, he said, and so all the reporters got to thinking and got to talking, you know, who's this? Do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? He said, and so finally we had a pool and we were betting where along that corridor Oswald was going to be shot. No way. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm just, you know, I'm just stunned that I'm hearing you know, hearing that. And so, you know, from all that time, you, you, you wonder exactly, was it, was it an inside, inside mm. job? Personally, no. I think that it was um Do you think Jack Oswald Ruby. was actually shot, though? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, there was no doubt, no, no yeah. doubt about that. But in terms of an inside job, I've always, always felt, you know, that, Jack Ruby was an individual who was a very emotional guy. He was a very unstable guy. He loved John F. Kennedy. Uh, he, that was one of his personal heroes, and he just broke. He had access to guns. That was, that was nothing. You know, back in those, I mean, if you live in Dallas, you've got no problems. You, you know, you can go to the store, buy a bottle of aspirin, and get a gun on the way out. You know, it's no, no problem. But I thought that was a, a fascinating thing. <laughs> a Jack Ruby special. A Jack Ruby special, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's probably the only time in my life I'll ever be you know, close to an incident. Well, I have a question for you. Approaches that, but it's fascinating. You said that you you were living between Dallas and Fort Worth? Yeah. So there was, uh, in 1963, was, uh, like, if you go to Dallas today, Dallas and Fort Worth are exactly, like, pretty much one city, one unified city. Was there, like, a distance of no man's land between the two? No. Actually, it's, they're not unified. You have the 30 miles that separates them, and then you have a number of different suburbs. And where I lived, it was a little cluster uh, called Tri-Cities. It it was uh, Hearst, Euless, and Bedford. But then you had Arlington and Grand Prairie and Irving. So you do, you have a continuous flow of cities, but they're all fairly separate. I ask because when I was living in the South, we used to drive to Dallas whenever we wanted to go to like a good restaurant or something. I think I drove to Dallas at least five or six times. So that's why I was Yeah. When I was taking my um, U.S. history courses back at UBC days, uh, we were covering the assassination of JFK. And the issue that came up to me after I had studied all those things was that um, FBI at the time was arguably even they had much more authority than even now it does uh, back then. So they were like with impunity uh, putting um, wires on people and people's... uh, 
uh, framing people for doing things that they hadn't done, especially that's, oh, that yeah. has become very obvious in the case of, say, MLK, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my point was all in, so, but I made a, this thing that um, this I told this to my professor that um, uh, with the JFK assassination, uh, even if Hoover, uh, who was the director of the FBI, even if he didn't know that this is going to happen, or if he had no intel- knowledge whatsoever and Oswald did this alone by himself. Afterwards, afterwards, the FBI was actually in charge of the investigation. Uh, the, he had absolute, uh, uh, he had the power to know if there was a con- conspiracy and if it was so, to bring them out. And he didn't do that. So, my, uh, so I, I, was, I always argued that he is the type of person that even if he didn't do it himself, he would know who did it. Well, well, I think the prevailing theory now is that it was the mob um, and or the Cubans that seems, I mean, there was a time that the, that the conspiracy theories even covered the fact that uh, Lyndon Johnson, you know, might have might have done it to, you know, to put himself in power, that he had the personality that would allow him to do that. But I think um, it, it's so convoluted at at this point, it's it really, you know, maybe when the documents are released. I'm sorry, dear, but in 2015, now the prevailing theory is Magneto from the X Men <laughs> actually did it, <laughs> and that is the story. Well, at least we, at least we know I didn't do it. That's yes, the, <laughs> yes. At least I'm cleared now. 100. You heard it here first here at Left of the Valley, guys. Nancy did not. To shoot the president. Yeah. Well, just just to wrap things up, if you were asking before about Lee Harvey Oswald, whether he was crazy, um, his mother was a woman whose name was Marguerite Oswald, and she was an absolute horror. She um, do- tried to dominate the um, the whole uh, incident. She would call afterwards. She would call the police. She'd call the reporters. She wanted to tell them all about her boy. And by listening to Marguerite, you really understood how Lee turned out the way the way he did. It was there's a, a book. If anybody is interested, um, and I've just ordered the book. Um, it's called Dallas. 1963, and the author is Bill Manalio. I'll spell that M-I-N-U-T-A-G-L-I-O. And if you just Google Dallas 1963, it gives you the, the, all, all of the background. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to reading it since I lived there during that time. Okay, well, thank you so much, Nancy, for this very interesting look in history. And we'll be right back right after this. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Center. Please visit our website for more details, bchumanist.ca. Okay, we're back. So today we are going to be talking about Paris versus ISIS and the atrocities that happened there, and we're going to get into a long discussion about all this 
And hopefully we can shed some light for everybody about the whole situation. But first, I want to tell you guys that, yeah, so I went out there and essentially did a whole bunch of research, as much as research as I can do anyway. No, not really. It was fairly easy to find. But I thought I'd give you guys a, a bit of a, a timeline as to what happened in the uh, events of uh, the shooting in uh, Paris. So uh, we'll start at the... Uh, at 9.20 local time, this is in, in, the, in the evening. At 9.20 and 9.30 9.53, three explosions are heard from the Stade de France, where a football game, uh, which is France versus Germany, actually is taking place. There's 80,000 people in, in there, the spectators, including the president of Francois Hollande. There's uh, four people and uh, three terrorists uh, of these people that actually died in the explosions at the entrance of the stadium and outside of McDonald's. There is a rumor that the fourth victim is actually a Muslim security guard who died trying to stop the terrorist. But that has not been confirmed at this point. Uh, when the fans leave the stadium, at the calmly, they, they, they start singing the French national anthem, La Marseillaise. At the same time, uh, at, at the uh, Bataclan, which is a... Like a venue, I guess. Uh, there's 1,500 people uh, there to see the Eagles of Death Metal, which is a, uh, a rock group of California. At 9.40, three gunmen with AK-47s start firing into the crowd. They reload three or four times. One shouts, Allah Akbar, as, as they're doing that. Uh, the panicked crowd tries to flee the uh, assailants, and, uh, and, uh, and then the terrorists decide to hold about 20 hostages. Those that are trapped inside... Uh, the venue uh, essentially started using Twitter and social media to alert what's going on inside. And that actually was credited by the police to actually helping them make a decision because when you're in a situation like that, the first idea is, well, okay, try to establish a perimeter, try to contact a terrorist, you have, and start negotiating. But since these people were basically saying on social media, hey, we're being shot here, the cops said, okay, let's, let's just go. So the police stormed the venue around 12.20 a.m. and they kill all the gunmen and... And then they notice that all of them are actually under 25 years of age. Very young. Uh, then at the Restaurant La Belle Equipe, at 9.36, uh, the witnesses see a man get out of his car with a high-caliber weapon and open fire on the patrons. 19 are dead. The gunman got back in his car and headed towards a Charonne station. At Restaurant Le Carillon, at 9.25, a gunman opens fire after stepping out of a car with Belgian plates. 15 dead, 10 injured. And there was another five dead and eight injured at Casa Nostra. So that was a brief outlay of what happened that evening. Big numbers. Now, for those of you, everybody knows what Islam is, but let's let's go and let's, let's check out is, uh, Islam, uh, what Wikipedia would say about Islam. Um, Islam is obviously a monotheistic and Abrahamic religion based upon the Quran, a religious text considered by the adherent to be the verbatim word of their God, Allah. And for the vast majority of adherents, by the teaching, a normative example called the Sunnah composed of accounts called the Hadith of Muhammad, who is thought to have lived between 570 to 578 and died in 632 CE. He's considered by most of them to be the last prophet of God. Most Muslim are of two denominations, the Sunni, which is about 75 to 90 percent of them, or the Shia, which is 10 to 20 percent of them. About 13 percent of the Muslim live in Indonesia, which is the largest non-Muslim majority country. Uh, 25% of all Muslims live in South Asia, 20% in the Middle East, 15% in Sub-Saharan Africa, and sizable Muslim communities also found in Europe, China, Russia, and the Americas. 
Converts and immigrants communities are found in almost every part of the world, obviously, and with about 1.62 billion followers, or 23% of the global population, that's almost one in four, Islam is the second largest religion by numbers of adherents, and according to many sources, the fastest growing major religion in the world. Okay, let's open this up. Enough about me. I want to hear your thoughts. I do. I. I, I guess I want to. I want to talk about you know um, many aspect of this this tragedy, and maybe one of them is the first thing I may want to talk about is um, there's been a, a difference in how the West reacted to the attacks in Paris as opposed to the attack in Beirut, which was the day before. Yeah. Um, I never even heard about Beirut. Yeah, it, it barely made the rounds, you know, and, you know, I, if, do you guys have any thought? Why, why are we paying so much attention to what happened in Paris? But we're not, pay, we're not paying attention so much anymore to what's still happening with Boko Haram down in Africa or Beirut, for that matter. Because it, uh, the importance of the events in um, Paris was uh, the fact that uh, it, it showed a major change of strategy on the part of the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant. Because uh, what distinguished this uh, terrorist group from the... Wahhabi terrorist group Al Qaeda is that uh, they denounced uh, foreign operations similar to the one that in, that happened in Paris and condemned Al Qaeda and got separated from Al Qaeda because they actually did not want to they did not consider that the correct way of fighting the West they wanted they the uh, Sunnah or the tradition of Prophet Muhammad says that the that the an Islamic government has to be formed first, and then you declare once an Islamic government is created the way Muhammad did, once that then you you go and start to uh, convert the infidels or kill them. Uh, so that was very um, hard reading of a very classical traditionalist the way uh, ISIS is basically doing it reading of Muhammad's life uh, and Muhammad's tradition is that he, uh, he, he first formed the government and then he started the killings. Uh, Al-Qaeda and bin Laden, when he started his uh, thing, whatever, jihad or whatever you want to call it, uh, back in 1995, it's, um, it announced that they're going to uh, attack the West uh, to prepare the Islamic world for the start of a caliphate. Well, ISIS came along in uh, 2009 and uh, uh, 2013 they declared the foundation of the caliphate and the year zero. And uh, they formed an Islamic government. They declared themselves the Islamic state. Everything else is not an Islamic state. They they, the guy who leads them uh, didn't hide like Bin Laden. He actually, he is basically openly in public, and he declared himself the caliph. You either had to uh, declare loyalty to him, or you would be killed. There was no uh, so so he would so the attack on Beirut that you mentioned, um, in hierarchy of the enemies that the ISIS has. Uh, the worst enemy that they had, according to their reading of Islam, 
are the heretics or the ones that have brought a new tradition, a novel, bring novelty, that's a term that they use, or bet'at in Arabic, uh, in Islam. And the main culprit in that are the Shiites. So they have a, so they would, they would have, um, they would, I can say that they can cut some slack for a Christian, but they would never cut anything for a Shia. A Shia is a, if a person is a Shia, they have to kill that person. It's a religious duty for them. So really? the attack on in Beirut is not even remotely surprising because, uh, because uh, first of all, it was uh, the bomb exploded in the Shia part of the city of Beirut, which is in southern part of it. And the people who died in it were 40, 45 people who got killed, uh, including the father who grabbed the attacker and the suicide uh, bomber and pulled him on the ground, saving the life of his daughter. Wow. And that guy, everyone who got killed, except the suicide bomber, obviously, were all Shias. They are wow. fighting against the government of uh, Bashar Assad, who is a Shia uh, minority. The Alawite uh, that this guy is from are a minority even within a minority. They are the minority that only exists in Syria of Shias. And they're fight so basically the fight against Assad is not the fight against the government of Syria for them or the people of Syria. It's a fight of the against in uh, heretics against oh. uh, so it actually is more important for them. And uh, so they're fighting against Kurds. Kurds are Sunni. And they're fighting against uh government of Iraq. Government of Iraq that currently is led by a Sunni uh it's not being led by Sunni uh, government, but it's, uh, traditionally the government of Iraq was always a Sunni government. But they're fighting basically against Sunnis, my point is. Uh, but if the fight against Assad, their fight against the Iranian Revolutionary Guards is a holy war for them because they're fighting against heretics. Mm -hmm. But then all of, in the middle of all of this, uh, Paris happens. So it's a major, a scary change of tactics mm -hmm. on the part of ISIS. They're doing something that usually only Al-Qaeda used to do over the past 20 years. Wow. Are we thinking that, I, I, you know, I don't know what you guys think, but I'm thinking that, you know, one of the reasons I think this, this uh, attack hit us so hard is uh, because we have a tendency to think that, you know, stuff that happens in Beirut, stuff that happens in Africa is almost too common now. We've almost like desensitized ourselves to the, the horrors that are happening over there. That issue was actually you, when we had a, this show after the attacks on Charlie Hebdo, and you asked me that very question. Yes, that's like, right. And I was asked, and I told you, I'm, I'm surprised that people are surprised. Why did you? Why didn't you not expect this? Why? Why? Why are you being surprised? You are their enemy, even if, uh, even if you don't think, you don't even consider them uh, to exist. But their mentality is such that the fact that you exist makes you their enemy. And, and uh, we are all atheists. Well, I'm assuming that we are all atheists here. And the, they kill Christians telling, saying that they are atheists. Ah. So after heretics, the number two are the atheists. Or the uh, Arabic term for it is uh, kafir or infidel, uh, which is what we say. They would not consider someone who is not a monotheist or believes in more than one God, an atheist. They would con so, oh. it, so someone like a Hindu or uh, someone who believes in... No, that's a polytheist to them. That wouldn't qualify as an infidel in, mm. text, uh, in the text of Islam. Uh, but someone who doesn't believe in the existence of any God, 
Yeah, yeah that guy is. Uh, was like, there was an interview where they the are nagests. Yeah. They are dirtier than feces and urine and pigs and uh, dogs. So yeah. that, like, if you can, if you shake if you touch a dog, if you wash your hand, it's clean. If you um, if you uh, touch poop. <laughs> your hand is dirty, but you can wash it and it becomes clean. If you shake the hand of an infidel, even if you wash it, it doesn't get cleaned. So well, that's basically uh, that's how that's how serious it is. That's they, what they really think. They ever thought of using OxyClean? Yeah, well, actually, blood is the only thing <laughs> that cleans it. So you have to wash your hand with his blood. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I just I just want to say, completely blown my mind. Like I, in terms of understanding, I've done a lot of reading. That was a fantastic explanation, and certainly explains. How Paris? How Paris is a deviation from you know uh, the attack in Beirut, which was attacking their traditional enemies, the Shia. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me, actually, a little bit of um, if you look at ratios of believers to believers um, in the early uh, days of the um, Christian Reformation. You had the Lutherans, which were probably, if you looked at Germany, about ten percent of the uh, Christian world, and Catholics, uh, the, especially the Catholic Church had declared, uh, you know, they really had it in for um, a lot of these uh, Lutherans. And there was a lot of wars that were related to Protestantism and Catholicism in those early days. Um, I wanted to quickly touch on two things. Um, That was a fantastic uh, uh, summary. Uh, Two historical things that I think have really had um, a significant impact on our current situation. One is um, I've done a lot of... uh, done a lot of listening to a lot about the uh, Mongolian invasions and uh, there was particularly the sack of Baghdad where um, almost every Muslim was killed by the Mongolian army Uh, the Christians were spared because there was some Christian generals in the Mongolian army I use Christian in quotation marks Um, and a lot of Islamic scholars uh, almost all of them were killed a lot of knowledge was lost and a lot of um, there, there are some theories that 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 you know that wiped out a whole intellectual um, side, and 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 of course uh, the Islamic Empire at the time had a lot of advances in mathematics and astronomy. They were very very pro science at a time that the Catholic Church was anti science. But you had this loss of all this knowledge, and then the second thing is um, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which was um, you know uh, basically divided up by powers like Britain and France, who had no knowledge of the uh really of what was going on on the ground and from my understanding that has created a lot of uh instabilities the way that they drew borders not unlike what happened in africa during the colonial times and so that created some that's why we see some wars within states or between states it's one it's one of the things that the isis and uh, al-qaeda blames the west for is after world war one iraq iran and all that the borders were redrew uh, by the Western powers, and it, it it led to some of the tensions. Well, not Iran, because the border between Iran and the Ottoman Empire was drawn in 1530s, 1540s, so mm-hmm. that the border that today exists between Iran and Turkey mm-hmm. and Iran and Iraq, uh, that has been around since at least uh, 1810 without being touched. I don't quite understand the, uh, the sack of Baghdad, because Baghdad was sacked in 1256, and yes, it, they killed everyone. And but the for example the uh, the my hometown of Tus was sacked in 1214 by the Mongols, 
and they killed everyone and then they and what the mentality of mongols uh, is very different because mongols um they left no one alive it was the, their mentality that we we will need we must not leave any eye to mm-hmm. cry for the dead so yeah. that was so even they were taking over a city yeah, they were right. killing every living being in it. Let, let's not digress on Mongols here. No, no, yeah, <laughs> Still. So, no that was because well, this podcast is going to be a five-hour show. Because I don't, uh, don't see the their difference. their policies. If you look at historically, they were particularly brutal in the Middle East um, compared to even um, Europe or or uh, Central Asia um, because of some some rivalries. But I was just saying that that there are some that theorists that say that that could have potentially had an impact on the region. Well, speaking of uh, theory and all that, uh, since all this is linked to what's been happening in Syria, I've got here a five-minute video that explains exactly the history of the Syrian war and where we've been all the way to up now. So let's play this. Syria's war is a mess. After four years, the conflict is divided between four different sides on the ground. Each side has different foreign backers, and those foreign backers don't even agree with one another about who they're fighting for or who they're fighting against. To understand all this, the crisscrossing interventions, the moving battle lines, it helps to go back to the beginning of the war and watch how it unfolded. The first shots in Syria's war are fired in March of 2011 by Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad and peaceful Arab Spring demonstrators. In July, some of the protesters start shooting back, and some Syrian troops even defect from Assad's army to join them. They call themselves the Free Syrian Army, and the uprising becomes a civil war. Extremists from Syria and from around the region start traveling to join the rebels. Assad actually encourages this by releasing jihadist prisoners to tinge the rebellion with extremism, make it harder for foreigners to back them. In January of 2012, Al-Qaeda forms its new branch in Syria called Jabhat al-Nusra. Also around then, Syrian Kurdish groups who've long sought autonomy take up arms and de facto secede from Assad's rule in the north. That summer is when Syria becomes a proxy war. Iran, which is Assad's most important ally, intervenes on his behalf. By the end of 2012, Iran is sending daily cargo flights and has hundreds of officers on the ground. At the same time, the oil-rich Arab states on the Persian Gulf begin sending money and weapons to the rebels, mainly to counter Iran's influence and mainly through Turkey. Iran steps up its influence in turn in mid-2012 when Hezbollah, which is a Lebanese Shia group backed by Iran, invades to fight alongside Assad. The Gulf states respond by sending even more money and weapons to rebels, Saudi Arabia really leading the effort at this point, and this time going a lot through Jordan, who also opposes Assad. By 2013, the Middle East is divided between generally Sunni powers on one side supporting the rebels and Shias on the other side supporting Assad. That April, the Obama administration, horrified by Assad's atrocities, signs a secret order authorizing the CIA to train and equip Syrian rebels. The program stalls out at first. At the same time, the U.S. quietly urges the Arab Gulf states to stop funding extremists, but their requests go ignored. In August, Assad uses chemical weapons against civilians in the town of Ghouta. Men, women, children lying in rows killed by poison gas. It is in the national security interests of the United States 
to respond to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons through a targeted military strike. Russia proposed on Monday that Syria su uh, surrender control over its chemical weapons to the international community for its eventual dismantling to avoid a U.S. military strike. The U.S. ends up backing down, but the whole thing establishes Syria as a great powers dispute, with America against Assad and Russia backing him. Just weeks later, the first American training in arms through that CIA program finally reached Syrian rebels. The U.S. is now a participant in the Syrian war. In February of 2014, something happens that transforms the war. An al-Qaeda affiliate, mostly based in Iraq, breaks away from the group over internal disagreements over Syria. The new group calls itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and it becomes al-Qaeda's enemy. ISIS doesn't fight Assad. Instead, it fights the other rebels and it fights the Kurds, carving out a mini-state in Syria that it calls its caliphate. And that summer, it marches across Iraq, seizing territory and galvanizing the world against it. Then, in September, almost exactly one year after it almost bombed Assad in Syria, We're moving ahead with our campaign of airstrikes against these terrorists, and we're prepared to take action against ISIL in Syria as well. That summer, the Pentagon launches its own program to train Syrian rebels. But unlike the CIA program, this one will only train rebels who fight just ISIS, not Assad. And the program fizzles out, showing that America now opposes ISIS more than Assad, but also that there's really no like-minded force on the ground in Syria. In August, Turkey begins bombing Kurdish groups in Iraq and in Turkey, even as Kurds are fighting ISIS in Syria. Turkey also doesn't bomb ISIS in Syria. All of this deepens tension with the US, over this question of whether they need to treat Assad or ISIS the primary enemy and creates a lot of confusion among the Kurds about where the U.S. stands. Now Assad has been losing ground all this time to ISIS, to the rebels, and in September of 2015, Russia intervenes on his behalf. Russia says it's there to bomb ISIS, but in fact it just bombs the anti-Assad rebels, including some rebels who are backed by the U.S. So as it stands now, there are lots of different groups and outside countries involved in Syria's war. And even among allies, there are big disagreements about who their enemies are, who to support, and how to do it. And those contradictions are a big part of why, for this war, there is just no end in sight. All right. Well, that, yeah, that was informative, wasn't it? Now that we all know about the history... What has led us to this? I guess the question arises, what do we do about it now? Uh, it's an enemy, in my view, that has to be completely and utterly destroyed without leaving anyone alive who subscribes to it. Uh, it's not an enemy. You cannot... Uh, the, the thing that they they do uh, is that they... In the, in the, with their soldiers, and then you can see that with the guys who... You said it yourself. None of them were older than 25. Mm. So they take them young. So they, they call them the little cubs of the client, uh, the caliphate, the little... Yeah, well, like every clients. other religion, you indoctrinate the, the young, right? Mm, this is very different. They're not... I'm not talking about the doctrination. I'm talking about killing. Mm. So the way, for example, the ancient Vikings used to do, they, when they wanted to train a warrior, uh, they would give him a slave to kill to an oh. eight-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy. And if you look at the number of the uh, uh, videos that they have released, mm. you're, talking, you're looking at seven, eight, nine-year-old boys 
killing Syrian soldiers who were captive. Oh, uh, so they actually train them at a very young age to kill. Yeah, you see them even younger. I've it's seen like that, the we, child soldiers in Africa. Well, it's, it's, even worse, exactly talking about it's even worse than that because you see video, plenty of videos out there on social media of kids. I mean, you're talking about like three-year-old and he's practicing beheading his stuffed teddy bear. I mean, the, uh, mom, we're, I'm talking about the killing of uh, like man, a grown-up man. Yeah. And, they, and they do that with, uh, with relish and pleasure. And uh, and uh, so what they do, uh, so with a guy who has been tra- who has that kind of training who has who has been killing at a very young age for and regularly. So what do you want to do? That do you want to like? Uh, okay, you're not forgiven. Come and join our society, or come and go and have a life. No, that's the only the only way to deal with that kind of uh, threat uh, is eradicated. And you don't. You don't think. You don't think these these child soldiers, for lack of a better term, can be saved. No, you know? absolutely not. No. Uh, it's uh, it's it's there are some sort of they're beyond uh, repair. They're, they're beyond sick. repair. Okay. It's it's complete. It's a it's a threshold that the society, our mm. society, has an obligation to protect itself from that kind of threat. You cannot you cannot put that in a psych ward for that kind of person. Like it's a threshold that once passed. You, uh, it's pretty much like cannibalism. Somebody does it once. You, uh, okay. It's like really. And so my uh, so I, I I don't know if I agree with that because after all you know um, you said after somebody does it once we have killers in our jail cells today that are reformed right. Uh, we are talking about people that are have done this as a routine since at a very early age and it's, it applies to ISIS. Uh, it applies mm-hmm. to child soldiers in Africa. Joseph Kony's army of uh, Lord's Resistance Army it applies to uh, any, and they do that deliberately. They go after the young ones for that purpose. They, in the case of the Lord's Resistance Army, it's that you have to kill your parents or you will be killed yourself. Oh so, my God. so that it goes, it starts with that. that. Uh, in case of ISIS, that they start, uh, they, they do that too. Uh, but I want to speak a bit about ISIS because. This uh, there are certain facts that I see, uh, when I'm talking to my uh, friends I've noticed that they don't know about this uh, group. Uh, first of all, there's uh, the person of Caliph. Uh, we have, that's pretty much something that most people have uh, some knowledge about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we're going to ranks uh, the second, third, fourth ranks, uh, then it becomes a bit uh, uh, terra incognita. People don't know anything. Uh, the number two, three, four, five, six in the ISIL hierarchy are all generals of the Saddam Hussein army. Oh, really? So it's uh, the ISIL, So you have uh, when this guy's uh, had it was a terrorist group in Iraq, as this uh, okay. movie that you just showed uh, uh, showed that. They went over and took over Syria, uh, the eastern half of Syria. It's not; it's one big desert. It's not a military accomplishment to do that. It's you. You get into a bunch of pickup trucks. You go from one town and you go capture the next town about two hundred miles away. That's not a military accomplishment. Once they repeated that in June of 2013, uh, was it 2013 or 14? I don't recall exactly right now, that they took the city of Mosul uh, Mm -hmm. in northern Iraq. It's a city with well over one and a half million population. It's... uh, it had the largest... Still? It does it still have that kind of population? It's a huge population, yes. Wow. It still does, yeah. 
and uh, the and once the and the biggest um, depot of the Iraqi army was in Mosul. So they had artillery, heavy artillery. We're talking heavy artillery. We're talking tanks, uh, and uh, and there were planes. So there was there is an airport, air force base in, in Mosul, big one, and uh, they took those. And shockingly, they knew how to operate them. They had they uh, so when uh, so. What you're saying is that wasn't coincidence <clears throat> that they knew how to operate them. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that so setting up an art so people who have served in the army they know that setting up an artillery position, how to defend an artillery, how to set up an art, how to use an artillery is something that requires a lot of military training. Right. And ISIS didn't lose a beat when mm. they captured all of the hardware. And they used that efficiently and deliberately and uh, efficiently against the Iraqi army, Syrian army. Wow. And uh, there is a tendency in my, in, when I'm talking to my friends that keep thinking of ISIS as something like Al-Qaeda. They're thinking about a bunch of uh, ragtag hungry people uh, sitting in a cave in some mountain. No, it's an army. It's an army that is very efficient, that has really... Uh, uh, crazy fighters that are that are uh, battle hardened fighters uh, that have been fighting against the U.S. Army in Iraq. Ah. They have been fighting against the Syrian Army in um, in Syria against Hafez Assad. They are, they are now fighting against Kurds and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Syria. It's an enemy that uh, fights conventionally and fights unconventionally. It has both expertise to fight both kind of those battles. It, it is, they can fight guerrilla warfare. They can fight conventional warfare. So they have been defeating the, what goes now as the Iraqi army, and they have been defeating regularly the Syrian army. These are all trained armies. These are, they are conventionally trained armies. And they're fighting against the Kurdish Peshmergas, which is an irregular army, and the Shia militia of Iraq, also an irregular army. They're fighting against Al-Qaeda in Syria, which is the Al-Nusra Front, an irregular terrorist organization. They are fighting against all these enemies, and they're winning. They're maintaining a united front. Because, and my point is that they have been doing that for two reasons that those reasons are not being explored enough. No, One is that they're being, they're being led by uh, battle-hearted generals. Right. So these are Iraqi army generals who have experience of fighting against Iran in the 1980s. And they have the experience of fighting against the United States during the uh, 2003 to 2011. And they have the experience of fighting against Syria uh, now since the two, Syria fell apart. Is there any way of making peace with these guys, like, at all? Like, just to be like, man, just chill, or let's let's stop this, or not really? Absolutely not. No. Uh, the only thing that... Uh, They're really uh, The only thing that they would consider to le let you leave, live and uh, is that you accept their caliphate, they, ex okay. they accept them as a uh, representative of God on the planet, you pay tribute to them. Wow. And that's if you're not an atheist, if you're a Christian. So if you're if that's if that's what you're willing to do, I'm assuming they can. I don't know, but uh, ten. Uh, so even but they would they would they would do that for by the way just ten years. So uh, because the tradition of Muhammad is that when he made peace with the Jews of Medina, he made he kept he made a peace and he kept that peace for ten years and then he declared war and killed them all. Wow. So how many people um, 
are would you say like offhand are this hardcore like because i know muslims get they are from- the size of isis basically you're talking Ooh, about the size 20 so twenty-five thousand people that's actually the the most conservative estimates i've heard is fifty thousand. Uh, okay. the most liberal estimates i've heard are two hundred thousand. okay and now, that's what people need to know in the media it's not uh, i don't think that that's important i don't think the size no of i their, i think the size, the size of their force is important i i think because what's happening is uh, what I've seen on Facebook and that sort of thing is people uh, just blindly label Muslim people or anything and be like, oh, you're Muslim, but they need to know the extremist thing. I think if it was in the media, like more of these extremists, like how many people are looking at, you know. Uh, the difference between these guys and Muslims uh, is that if you call the uh, Lord's Resistance Army of Uganda Christians. as all Christians. <laughs> yeah. So this is a Lord's Resistance Army, as I, we talked earlier. That's that, a great way of explaining it. So actually. if you're talking, so that guy, Joseph Coney, uh, he was raised in, a, my understanding is, in a Roman Catholic. He actually was a Roman Catholic, uh, had a Roman Catholic schooling. And then he also then believed that he is an apostle of uh, Jesus Christ. And now he's being receiving revelations, going around with his child soldier army in four or five different countries, killing people. Uh, to call ISIS uh, the equivalent of Islam is to call Lord's Resistance Army the equivalent of Christianity. Now, I have yeah. a question for you. Um, I actually have a couple questions, and maybe other people that are listening will have these questions too. But So from my understanding, um, Iraq is actually... The, the borders of Iraq actually encompass a population that is majority Shia. 60% Shia. And a minority, um, next uh, smallest minority would be, uh, well, be Sunni and then Kurd. Uh, the Sunni is, uh, they, well, they are all Arab. So there are two ethnic minorities. It's, uh, two ethnic, uh, one major, ethnic majority of Arabs, mm-hmm. one ethnic major, minority of Kurds. So ethnicity okay. are two. So what so you're saying is, is faith-wise. Arabs, okay. Among Arabs, uh, but if, if you want to go Shia-Sunni, then you have uh, 60% of the population of Iraq, okay. which includes uh, 90%, 90% Arab, and probably a very small minority of Kurdish Shias. And you have the 20% of Arab Sunnis, and uh, then the rest of uh, Kurds okay. who are also Sunni. But uh, the difference... So, Right now, what what has what the way people and media talk about Iraq, you have Kurds that are being treated as one unified front, uh, even though they have Shia Sunni uh, going on. They have Democrat versus communist thing going on among them. So even Kurds are not okay. remotely right. united. If Kurds were united, uh, we would have an independent country called. We'd Kurdistan. have Kurdistan, yeah. Uh, but Kurds aren't united. Um, then you have uh, the Arab Sunnis that would be the, the 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 western part of Iraq, the part that is in border with Syria, and, and that part is entirely now in uh, ISIS. That part in its entirety, and that part uh, is all desert. Uh, there's not a single mountain of any kind in that region. Uh, the, it is. Um, so I've seen a lot of people that are talking about sending uh, Western troops, Canadian, American, French troops to go and fight in that desert, uh, which is which a land war against ISIS mm. would mean. Like, uh, 
Uh, I am one of the people who thinks that that's not the best way of dealing with it. Uh, okay. The best way of uh, dealing with it was to swallow uh, the pride uh, that we have. Uh, we are we have a great opportunity that uh, they have attacked Russia as well. Yes, they have attacked France. They have attacked the United States. We have attacked Canada. They, they killed a Chinese diplomat. Uh, they killed a Chinese dip- diplomat. So even China is on board. Uh, they they attacked our parliament last year. Uh, mm-hmm. These are all being. We are all basically in this one together. There is a. There can be a united. They have been fighting um, against uh, government of Syria and uh, government of Iran and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a chance for a united front against this particular enemy. Uh, the I don't think that sending ground troops of Western powers would be efficient. The best okay. gra- the best ground troops that can fight these guys are the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Ah, so right now, the commander general that uh, this guy, this guy, this guy. Got, Qasem Soleimani that you guys have probably have heard his name. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. So this is a guy who has been operating. He's the commander of the Quds Brigade, Quds Brigade, as, uh, when I was growing up in Iran. This was the uh, elite version, of, and it was an elite army, elite brigade, elite whatever you want. We're talking about... Is it like the U.S. Special Forces? It's the Special Forces, but the Special Forces that are... The the difference between uh, U.S. Special Forces in general is that they're trained for... Say Navy SEALs, they may fight in Pakistan, they may fight in Afghanistan, they may fight in Southeast Asia, they may fight in Africa. It doesn't make a difference. But these guys are trained to fight in specific countries. Wow. So the Quds Brigade pretty much is trained to fight in Iraq and Syria and pretty much against Israel. Quds is the Arabic word for Jerusalem. So this is an army that is supposed to someday capture Jerusalem, right? So these could are we could we maybe divert their anger towards Jerusalem and just head it north? No, that's not the point. The point <laughs> that I'm trying to make is that these guys are fluent in Arabic. They can mix and fight among uh, Arabic crowds, okay. and they have been doing that against the U.S. Army while the U.S. Army was in Iraq. Uh, they are fluent. They I actually have personal experience of dealing with them, like getting beats by them. Uh, I was a student and at the University of Tehran, and those years uh, they had these guys that were coming and basically we called them fascist militia. Uh, and they were when they were coming and like disrupting the student protests, the student uh, sittings, and all that. And they couldn't speak Persian; they were speaking fluent oh, Arabic to each other. Wow. And like uh, this was in the newspapers that why are these guys who are attacking um, the University of Tehran? Uh, meetings, uh, none of them could, can speak Persian. Uh, so at the time, the theory was that it, these are basically the fighters of Lebanon's Hezbollah, oh. that they're bringing into uh, using them as basically the SA troopers to suppress the Iranian people at the time. Uh, I later learned that, well, Hezbollah's Lebanon and Quds Brigade of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard are pretty much indistinguishable. They're basically the same troops. And and, and it's their terrorists. I'm not, um, but it's their terrorists that can right now fight ISIS. Uh, so for now, let them support them to fight ISIS. Right. Once ISIS is gone, get rid of them. You know, it's a shame because I was supposed to bring in our friend Ahmed. Would have been nice to have a Muslim uh, talk with Jim because Jim, you came out of Islam, so you had the apostate versus the Muslim, right? Ah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it would have been nice, but that'll be for another time, I guess. I don't, uh, as I was explaining earlier, I don't see ISIS as uh, their relationship between ISIS and Islam is pretty much. Well, you know, it's very difficult. It's a, it's a, it's, this it's is part my, of it. Yes, this is my problem. I have yes, the whole. Do, do we associate the IRA and Christianity? I think there's a really good analogy between Iraq and Northern Ireland in a way because you have. Um, IRA no, always can, gave advance warning before bombing a place. No, but it, it, it's, yeah. it's that place. They, it's these guys still, actually enjoyed. Yeah, that's see, true. It right. still cannot be ignored that the religion gives these people the permission to do these things. Uh, it's hard to justify your actions unless you have God on your side. So, the th- so I absolutely agree with that. The thing is uh, that uh, the uh, there is a certain level of uh, denial in people who are professing to Islam. So that was the pro that the last time that we talked with Ahmed, that was the case because I was he was looking he was he thought that the reformation in Islam would be um, uh, would be a solution, and uh, what I would say is that with the exception of attacks on Paris, I'm going to accept that completely out for now. Uh, any act done by ISIS so far, any act done by ISIS so far has a precedent in Muhammad's own government, not his successors, himself. So, for example, uh, when he declared war on the, uh, toward the end of his rule, uh, Muhammad's government is 13 years. So he forms a government for about nine, eight years of that. He's fighting defensive wars against the rest of Arabia who are trying to eradicate him and his government. And the final five years of his reign, he goes into offensive. <coughs> And one of his first offensive actions is he attacks the Jewish quarters of the city of Medina. It was five villages, uh, very affluent and very large. He goes and basically kills all the men and takes women and children as slaves. And uh, in one day, one sitting, uh, it's the battle, if you want to Google it and learn about it, it's called Khaybar, K-H-A-Y-B-A-R. And these, uh, it, this... I think the battle itself and the destruction of the Khaybar uh, villages takes about, uh, if I'm not mistaken, about a month. But um, in one day, he has taken 700 odd, 700 plus a few uh, prisoners. Uh, these are all, and these guys don't fight, by the way. They, so when the invading army arrives, uh, they basically go into their, um, uh, to their, uh, behind their walls and close it up. Okay, so let me let me read you something, Jim, because I, I think you 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 have a point of view here, and this is from Ayan Ursiali, and tell me if you agree with that. Um, she says, instead of letting Islam off the hook with bland cliches about the religion of peace, we need to challenge and debate the very substance of Islamic thought and practice. We need to hold Islam accountable for the acts of its most violent adherents and demand that it either reform or disavow the key beliefs that are used to justify those acts. Now, you were saying a few minutes ago that ISIS is doing exactly that. They're just repeating essentially what Mohammed was kind of doing with his government. Is she right? Yeah, absolutely, unquestionably. I don't think that but my problem with him, uh, her, and uh, with Sam Harris is that they don't go far enough. Uh, because uh, if you want to boil, if, the, if you boil down the substance of uh, the pillars of faith, as they're called, of Islam, the number one uh, is monotheism. Number two is the prophecy of Muhammad. They 
character, the person of Muhammad, that is considered infallible, a person who simply it was the infallibility of Muhammad is something that is beyond approach. And we, we, when we're talking about ISIS, when we're talking about Al Qaeda, when we're talking about about eighty-five to ninety percent of Islamic world that are call themselves Sunnis, they're the, follow, the followers of tradition of Muhammad. Sunni means traditional, and the ten fifteen the ten fifteen percent who are Shias are the supporters of his son-in-law Ali. Ali son, uh, and uh, the story I was telling you about the Battle of Khaybar is particularly illuminating on both of these characters, because uh, at, the, at the end of the battle, uh, when the battle was over, there were about 700 uh, prisoners, I was telling you, and uh, uh, so Muhammad killed them all, and the way he killed them all, that he went them into two groups of 350 people, and he gave them to his two son-in-laws, Ali, uh, son of Abu Talib, and Zubair, son of Abom. They decapitated 350 people each uh, over a couple of wells. Uh, so one well was for the heads, one well was for the bodies. And uh, this guy is the leader of, so, uh, of the Shia faith. So Shias are believing in a guy and who has the capacity, who has the ability, not capacity, has the ability to, and has done it to kill 350 men uh, prisoners in one sitting. Try killing a chicken and see if you can behead a chicken and then see if you can decapitate 350 men. You think you men. are, we get tired after a while, right? And he was extremely powerful, uh, physically powerful. Like he was, uh, he was, uh, he was the, cha- the champion of Muhammad's army. He was, uh, he could use both arms uh, when, when sword fighting. He was undefeated all the way to his to his death, and he was assassinated at the very end. And the unanimously, he is considered as physically like unchallengeable. He was completely do, able to do that. So that part is not the issue. Uh, the part that, um, but the infallible. And while this was happening, by the way, uh, while this was happening, Muhammad was marrying the widows of two of the leaders of these people, uh, while the decapitated bodies of their husband was basically outside the tent. And this was this became, so basically raping two women, two widows that with the bodies right outside, the bodies of their husbands right outside of the tent. And this is actually, <laughs> uh, this is actually the, uh, if you have a copy of Koran, if you look at the, if I'm not mistaken, it's Surah 8, number 8, is a chapter of Quran, Surah of Quran, uh, which is Al-Anfal, which means the spoils of war. Uh, the, Jewish of, the Jews of Medina, the Jews of Arabia, were extremely wealthy for, by the standards of the time. After this battle, there were so many slaves, uh, in, in women and children, basically, and uh, a whole lot of wealth that came into the possession of the Muslims, uh, the Muslim army. And there was a major um, civil war about to begin over the distribution of these water spoils. This chapter of Koran, obviously, was revealed to Muhammad uh, about how to distribute wealth 
in an Islamic country. That's a nice coincidence, isn't it? And yeah, exactly. That coincidence was. But the beauty part of it is that this is this chapter, this chapter I'm talking about, is also the entire section of the the economy section uh, in the economics section in Sharia law is uh, rooted in this chapter. So. There, what what is public and what is private? What can be taxed? What cannot be taxed? Uh, what belongs to the what be, what can be given to the soldiers and what cannot be given to the soldiers? And all of these are decided in this one chapter. And that's the so there is this thing called um, after the Iranian Revolution, Islamic Revolution, nineteen seventy nine. Uh, there was this movement toward Islamic economics. In Iran, and the, the similar thing is happening today in, in all the Arabian. Well, it has been going on in the Arabian countries, and this is what ISIS is implementing in its uh, government. It's all based on that chapter that came down exactly after that uh, after that battle. Uh, so, so, so let me get this straight. So Mohammed comes one day, he, he spoils a war, and then he decides he's going to write the rules. So he goes all to the leaders. He basically says. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. <laughs> and then ISIS, a thousand somewhat years later, decide, you know, that's a great strategy. We should just implement that because Mohammed did that. And guess what? It has been working so far. So they, it, they have been doing that and they have been defeating enemy after enemy for the past two years. And this aura of invincibility is one of the things that is very important for their uh, propaganda machine. So they have been gaining territory uh, regularly they have been defeating any enemy that so far has opposed them whether conventional armies like the iraqi army or syrian army or terrorist uh, i'm sorry not terrorists irregular fighters guerrilla fighters like kurds kurds and others and this thing about this thing that makes them replicate uh, the history of muhammad muhammad was not defeated in any battle during his uh, well according to the myth anyway no, according to history, not according to myth. According to history, he was not. He this uh, every battle that he fought, he actually. Uh, there was a second battle that uh, ended in a draw, but other uh, he he actually was a military genius. So if we can say all about Muhammad, but in terms of military and the f- and the fact that he managed to by use of sheer force uh, unite the entire Arabia by the end of his. Uh, government by then by his death by end of his life, uh, that's the guy was simply a military genius. But that's not a positive thing to say about someone. So was Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, yeah. and all others. You know, I, I'm going to do a quick tangent here uh, because am I the only one that starts? You know, especially when you start saying you know Muhammad is regarded as being infallible. Yeah. You know, uh, if if the character of Jesus Christ, for example, for the Christian, would have had himself a kingdom and you know, an army and all that, you know, would we have had exactly that? You know, Jesus being infallible in the Christian's eyes, you know, uh, would we have some kind of Christian ISIS today? You know, the the, the, the parallels seem so obvious in a way, right? Well, it's Mo- just in the legend of Jesus, he never had a chance to actually do that. Moses did. Moses did. Jacob, uh, Jer- uh, Joshua did. You, and, you got a great point there. Moses and did. They, did, they did that, and they actually did the same acts uh, against groups of people, and people who read Old Testament, they never care about the Malachites, for example. Yeah, that's right. They don't care about the people who were uh, supposed to be completely eliminated as an entire group of people. And... Uh, 
the, the leader of the Lorzer's army, Joseph Coney, uh, he emulates a number of his actions on Solomon. So he has many, many child brides because Solomon did that. You're supposed to have 700 child brides because Solomon had 700 child that brides. That is, you know, uh, if that is not, you know, like you said, Joseph Coney or ISIS right now or whatever stupid group is out there, if this is not, a, you know, justifying exactly what we've been saying on this show and as atheists that, you know, religion needs to die for mankind to move forward, I don't know what is. I mean, really? You know, you're going to create so much misery because... Take Coney, for example. You're going to create so much misery because you want 700 wives like Solomon apparently did? How ridiculous is this? To my, uh, I, I fully understand what you're saying. Uh, it's a, but it's a leap of logic to go f- from this to that because uh, to let's say you're arguing against a Christian and to tell him that you have to stop believing in Christianity because... Uh, there's this guy named Joseph Coney, and he's doing the things that is, in the name of Jesus Christ, he's doing these things. And you have to stop living that because there's this guy. So that would be the same argument that, say, a Muslim, that because ISIS is doing these things that he's doing, and he's doing the acts of Muhammad, therefore you have to stop believing in that. Uh, No, 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 no. I, I understand that. But it's exactly the point I was trying to make. The religion gives them permission to do so. You know, Joseph Coney would have a hard time justifying his acts if he didn't believe that God told him to do so. If if people start asking him, why are you doing this? Uh, well, you know, you the only reason he would have left is because I want to gain power. And that is a hard sell. But if you start saying something like, well, because God, I'm on a, God, a mission from God, then all of a sudden you get a whole bunch of sheep, and I, I don't hesitate to use that word, that start saying, oh, well, you know, Blinders on, we're not going to question this anymore. And this is the real danger of religion. It's well, one of the many ones, anyway. Uh, there are a number of people, like uh, the caliph uh, of ISIS, uh, al-Baghdadi, there, like Joseph Kony, and uh, there are many others, many, many others, who have uh, used religion to justify their actions, and they find uh, precedent in either Old Testament uh, or in Korea, or in his, the tradition of Muhammad himself, in case of Muslims, and uh, but there are also a lot of people who have done this without using religion as an excuse. Uh, I think that go, I think that this is one of those things that has to be dealt with on a case by case basis. So it, it's it's much stronger to question, do what Ayman Hersi Ali says, of questioning the substance of religion of Islam by going after infallibility of Muhammad. So if you're ta- if you explain if you ex- I just explained to you the uh, gen- basically a genocide of uh, the Jews of Medina and this is this is this story is not debatable. This is not, this is not something that uh, the various groups of Muslim would disagree with that. Everyone knows this story. But they are uh, but the, the way the story is told is that the Jews broke their pact with Muhammad, they united with the enemies of Muhammad, Muhammad waged war against them, and after and that and this battle was fought and they did, and all the Jews were told to convert to Islam, many did, and those who were not they did not convert to Islam, uh, they were killed. So this is this is a story, this is an official story, what I just told you, okay? And but then you you have to have the ability to ask questions. Well, 
which, how many Muslims died in these battles? None. Then how, how were these guys fighting a battle if all the killings are on one side and there were, there were no, none on the other? Yeah. So this wasn't a battle. So this was basically a massacre. And so what kind of argument is this? That on one hand, you're saying that these are Abrahamic religions and you cannot touch them. And on the other hand, you're killing them if they don't convert to Islam. And what action did they do uh, in uniting against the enemies of uh, Muhammad? Well, they did not send troops to Muhammad. Well, did they send troops to the other side? No. Where, or if they did, it was like symbolic. So, because there was no battle in this. Um, there, was a, there was a battle uh, right before this, uh, which is called the Battle of Moat, M-O-A-T. Uh, so this, the way what happened was uh, the entire Arab Peninsula, all the Arabs, united against Muhammad. Some 10,000, an army of 10,000 people advanced on uh, Medina. So uh, Muhammad had about 3,000 troops. So what he did was that he kept all his troops in the city of Medina and he, uh, he dug a moat uh, around the city and filled it up with water. So, and the city basically became a fortress. So, we have, uh, so there is an Arab army of 10,000 without any siege weapons of any kind advancing on the city of Medina and all of a sudden they see a fortress. They have no idea how to fight it against it. There were, there were, so there was a couple, a couple of like champions of this army fighting against champions of this army. Uh, in that and uh, and that happened, uh, I think after, uh, for a while, uh, first days or something. And then there was a siege that lasted less than a month because there was no the uh, invading army didn't have any water or uh, food for a siege. They didn't come for a siege, so they basically dispersed. And that was the that was the third major battle against the people of Mecca that Muhammad fought. It was after that that Muhammad basically went after against his enemies one by one, starting with the Jews. And a year later, uh, he attacked the city of Mecca, and after that, he was basically the king of Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> but yes, I agree with you, and I agree with Ayman Harsi Ali, and I agree with Sam Harris that there is a tendency in among Muslims to ignore these facts. To there are you gave some. Um, like they, like they say, history is always written by the winner, right? So history is it's always, embellished as well. So it, exactly, and and my my problem with it, with this has been so far that uh, in all the history courses that I had to take when I was going through my elementary school and high school uh, years, the <clears throat> idea of critical thinking, the idea of questioning these things, was something that was very much um, uh, frowned upon, obviously for obvious reasons. So you have a so you list that countries the big Islamic countries in the world, uh, the biggest one being Indonesia with 250 million people. I've seen liberals, particularly, giving Indonesia as an example of uh, some sort of modern, advanced countries because they have traveled to, let's say, capital of Indonesia, and this was a very modern country. It's actually one of the uh, Indonesia, Malaysia. These are pretty much the same countries in terms of pop, uh, the um, demographic of the population. And they're the biggest, probably the biggest uh, troop um, exporters to ISIS. So they have a number of these guys that are fighting in against Christians in Philippines. Uh, there was a there were a number of uh, the Al Qaeda in in Southeast Asia, which um, 
I forgot its name, uh, but it's basically a, uh, it's a it's the Al Qaeda affiliate in Southeast Asia that keeps attacking in Indonesia and and Australia and in uh, they had a major 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 attack uh, in the city of Bali uh, uh, to a nightclub that they were killing basically Australian tourists and th- so this this country is one of the most fanatic exporters in the world. Yep. The, the second country would be India. Not, India is uh, one billion population, but 200 million of them are Muslims. There are more Muslims living in India than they live in Pakistan. And the third would be Pakistan, and the fourth would be Bangladesh. So that by itself is 800 billion Muslims right there. Uh, the Saudi Arabia, but, this, but the one that makes the most noise is Saudi Arabia with 8 million yep. population, which is tiny compared to the massive ocean of the outside. Yeah, which is exactly what we read from Wikipedia. Yep. All right, so let's take the conversation to a different tangent all of a sudden. We've talked about all the problems and all that, but um, I want to briefly address, and very briefly address, uh, the whole Syrian refugee. Because they're using, uh, a lot of people, especially on the conservative side of the spectrum, are using this uh, attack on Paris as a reason to not have the refugees come in. And I think that's... that. Well, well, first of all, what do you think about that? Well, as a conservative, I'm extremely disappointed at my party for doing that. That's something very disgraceful. I always forget you're conservative. (laughs) I used to live in uh, Damascus for a few months back in 1996. And uh, I saw firsthand uh, Syria and the Syrian people and uh, and the mentality of Syrian people. uh, It was a... Syria was an extremely uh, socially liberal country. It was a country that, um, uh, for example, it, is not, it was not by any means an Islamic country. To call it an Islamic country would be a lie. Uh, it's, for example, prostitution was legal in Syria. You could go to a... Pro- uh, if you that's something you wanted to do, you could go and do it in Damascus or Aleppo or Latakia or all these cities. Uh, It was a socialist country. Uh, I was very much at the time surprised at looking at their army. We were talking about uh, Soviet Union equipment, uh, Soviet Union trucks, Soviet Union everything about it uh, I was at the time looking at it like oh my god this is a country that's claiming that it's fighting against Israel with this equipment against fighting one of the most modern countries on the planet uh, the government it was a dictatorship in, ter- in terms that it would not allow you to have any uh, different political opinion from what the government was saying the country had only one single newspaper mm-hmm. for example but at the same time, when it came to everything else, it was very uh, liberal in socially, very progressive. It was um, um, the, there were it was difficult to see poor people. It was a socialist, semi-communist so, socialist country. So everyone had uh, a basic means of existence. The education system was quite good. Uh, so the, it became a bit of a problem when Assad essentially decided to not honor his promise uh, to be better than his father, from who he inherited all this, and essentially start to break down dissent. Right, dissent uh, was allowed, but then he started tightening the rules on that. Right, 
I don't believe descent has any time during. Uh, but when I was in Syria, it was '95. His father, the current Assad's yeah. father, was actually the president. Uh, this guy uh, at the time was the heir apparent because his older brother, who was the previous heir apparent, had died in a car accident very recently. So uh, he, Hafez Assad, the father. Uh, he was the commander of the Syrian Air Force uh, who came to power in 1971 with a coup. Uh, he had this, uh, he, he, was, he, he was from the Shia Alawite minority and had been in power fighting against Sunnis. In 1982, he bombed and killed an entire city, the city of Hama, and killed everyone. Every single person who was in this city was killed. Because the city rebelled against Syria by what today would be, we consider ISIS. It was a radical Sunni Wahhabi um, uh, rebellion in this city. They took over the city. They declared jihad against the infidel government of Hafez Assad. And Hafez Assad simply sent the army. There was an assassination attempt and he killed every living being in this city. Until the start of the Syrian civil war, I used to feel like, wow, what, what terrible thing uh, Assad did. But after seeing what has happened, I've realized, okay, for a guy like that, to Maybe rule a country, guy, he, had, he knew what he was killing. He yeah. knew what he was doing. And as much as I am uh, surprised at myself for saying it, uh, if, you don't, if you're not willing to do things on that similar scale against ISIS... Uh, you can't kill them. You can't eradicate them. You can't destroy their threat. It's uh, an existential. They're fighting existentially. It's either you, uh, you, either them, or you. And if you're f- if you're fighting against that kind of enemy, in my view, you have to fight with this, applying the same tactics. Yeah, but no. Well, I think I think you and I will disagree a tad there because I, I think you know, even if you kill all of them. I don't think you can. I don't think you could probably uh, eliminate the uh, the idea. But right. the issue that I forgot, I was going to mention, I forgot was the issue of the Syrian refugees. With yes, exactly. That's why. That's <laughs> why. What I'm saying is that the, uh, it was a country that the second language was French, so the f- people spoke Arabic. Everyone spoke Arabic. Pretty much everyone spoke French. So a guy like me who didn't speak neither Arabic or French uh, had a hard time because I spoke English and English, nobody speak, spoke English. Uh, they are the type of people that are fleeing an absolute horrendous condition. They are very good people. They are not. They are very different people from people from, say, Somalia or Afghanistan. That the state has fallen apart for so many decades that there is no culture left in the young generation that are being born in those countries. Syrians are very highly cultured, highly educationally advanced and they are just going through a very rough past four years the more they are they can contribute a lot to our society mm-hmm. they'll be excellent additions to our society they are syrian immigrants have done a lot to com- communities in north america if you have an iphone in your hand the, cr- the creator of iphone steve jobs was a syrian immigrant that's quite true and if you're you, they're not. They're very different from. Uh, if it's it's it's. I think it's not just a moral 
obligation. It's a patriotic obligation to Canada to, if you're American, to United States, to take as many of these people as we can. Yeah, uh, well, the, the the government is still poised to take twenty five thousand refugees. The U.S. now says it might take ten thousand. Well, there are four million refugees only in Turkey. Yeah, so, uh, so and it's, the, it's a drop in the bucket, really. The conditions that are living conditions in Turkey, to my understanding, are pretty much like Lords of the Fly. Oh, it's geez. that bad. That's that's awful. You know, the funny thing is, is the it seems that. People, on, especially on the conservative side of the, the spectrum we were talking about here, don't seem to realize that these refugees are fleeing ISIS. They're not ISIS. They are fleeing ISIS. You know? Exactly. So what are you, by slamming the door in their face, you're condemning these people to do what? Turn back and go back? You know, go back to what? To a war-ravaged country? To be executed? You're condemning them to death. The, I had this argument with this fellow who came to me and says, look, he was against the whole uh, refugee thing. He says to me, he says, Kev, I've got... A bowl with a thousand M&M's. He says, I've put 10 poison M&M's in there. Would you still take a handful? And I said, I said well, first of all, I said, your analogy is flawed. I said, you need 25,000 M&M's. Okay. Out of those 25,000 M&M's, you'd be lucky to maybe have three of those that are poison. And those three poison M&M's would have a chance which is the odds of being you being killed by a terrorist, which is what? 0.0001% odds. So yeah, I would take a handful at that point, you know. Uh, but the fear mongering, which is what we always do in this in the show, is you know fighting the myth. And it's a shame that these people that are in, in distress, the international community is not moving fast enough to save them, to rescue them. Yes, and they haven't been fast enough uh, for years now because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the. The living conditions in these uh, refugee camps are absolutely horrendous for these type of people. And uh, but we, the, another way to argue against that person who argue to argue this box of M and M's for you uh, would be: What is the goal of a terrorist coming to Canada or coming to the United States to wreak havoc, to fe- to scare people, yes. to terrorize people? So by being ter- by being terrorized, by being scared of that there could be someone who might do something, and uh, country, countries like ours, we're not we're not that much soft targets. Uh, we're not we don't have that kind of a fragile society, mm-hmm. and in, the, in that you're basically doing the job that terrorist wants to do for them by being scared of some what what would happen. You're basically doing exactly what they want to do. I'll, t- I'll take you one step further because if you were to shut the doors to the refugees, some of them will turn to ISIS. You know, some of them will say, you know what, ISIS will accept them. You know, say, well, you know, the West is shutting the doors to you. Come and join us. You know, the, these people are nice. They're not, they're, they're the infidel, they're the evil West. Uh, there is a minority, it, they will inflate their, their, their ranks slightly, by do that, of course, they'll kill a whole bunch of people, but there is a number as well that would join ISIS instead of being killed, right? I don't, uh, I'm not uh, persuaded by that because uh, looking at it from the view of ISIS, uh, you have to be a Sunni Wahhabi uh, person to be allowed to even live in an ISIS territory. Okay. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot be a Kurd, you cannot be a Shia Alawite, you cannot be a Christian to be allowed to live in those territories. You cannot be a Yazidi. They just discovered the 
uh, mass graves of the Yazidis in the, in the town of Yazidis, city of Sanjar, that Kurds just took over. And uh, if you look at it from the ISIS point of view, if you, if you say no to these guys, they're not going to go back to go back to join the ISIS. They're just basically dying from hunger and starvation yeah. or drowning in the seas. Uh, no, we have a. There's there, like I would I would have understood this thing if we were talking about a massive migration from say Ethiopia or Somalia or something that uh, that you're basically talking about a bunch of starving people and they're going to be here coming here and I'm not saying they're evil I'm just saying that they're not going to be able to contribute as much uh, but this but we're talking about people who are like there was a, a refugee that uh, a European that was in Europe. The guy was a cardiologist in Damascus until two years ago, and now he couldn't be a cardiologist. He, he, he wasn't. He, he couldn't. Li- it, the situation for him was unlivable, so he was out. But he was a cardiologist for crying out loud. Don't, don't you want someone like that yeah, to be exactly, living here? Exactly. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you? It's not yeah. a. It's not some. Yeah. They're, uh, they're not. They're not goat herders. You yeah, know, they're, exactly. they're people with professions, and you know. Exactly what we need in a, in a working force. Um, geez, already like an hour and forty four minutes in this. But you know, let's go. Let's let's end this on a positive note. Um, people are fighting back. People are fighting back. Yes. Um, for example, the the group, the hacker group, anonymous. Yes. Decided to fight back in a great way too. <laughs> they actually, uh, from what I heard at this point, by the time we we're saying this, I think they've erased like fifty uh, uh, five thousand five hundred accounts. That ISIS was using, and they've just essentially just eliminated those accounts. So yes. that's that's a fantastic. Um, uh, there are there there are many Muslim groups all over the world are coming out and uh, denouncing that. Yes. There's even a sheikh, I, f- I forget his name now. I had it up here, but I, I lost a window. Who actually issued a fatwa against the violence that well, uh, to, uh, the leader of Al Qaeda issued a fatwa against them. Yeah. All, so I mean that blew my mind away when I saw it. Uh, even though that wasn't that surprising to me, because it, the previous leader of ISIS, the one it was the just it was just in Iraq, it was a guy named Abu Musab al Zarqawi. If you I don't know if you remember that guy, he was uh, he was killed by the yeah. U.S. airstrike. He was the leader of the same group uh, just two generations before, two two generations, two three four years ago. Uh, he died in 2000. He was killed in 2006. He decapitated a Christian um, Iraqi uh, on camera. He, there was a lady named Margaret Hassan. I still remember her because uh, I was so much shocked by the, the fact that she was murdered, beheaded. Uh, she, was a, she was a Christian uh, Iraqi who had lived in Iraq in her entire life. She was married. She was a nurse. She was married to an Iraqi doctor, and because she was a Christian, she was beheaded by Al-Sarqafi personally. Al-Sarqafi was, after the video was released, a week later, all of a sudden, the U.S. US government had the exact location of where this, the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq is, uh, and they pinpointed him and attacked him and killed him. How could have they found that out without getting a tip from the highest levels of Al-Qaeda in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Like, because that was that was going against everything that basically yeah. those guys were standing for. Absolutely. Uh, and it was also this wonderful scene I saw on social media of this um, Muslim fellow in France, in Paris, who actually put a blindfold on, 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 on around his eyes there, and he basically had a sign on the floor that says, you know, I'm a Muslim, I don't support what ISIS is doing, but I'm told I'm a terrorist. 
and he's giving out free hugs. And the Parisian responded, you know, with hundreds of people giving him hugs and everything. So that's a beautiful moment. I just want to clarify that I was uh, talking about the leaders of Al-Qaeda giving that guy. I'm, I wasn't saying that they, those guys are blamed. They should be killed too. But <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make that clear. I don't want to basically say that, oh, they are such good people that they gave out Al-Sarghavi. No, it was because they went, that guy went against the traditional sphere of uh, Islam. Yeah. So all in all, you know, it's, it's a terrible situation, but there is hope. Yeah, there's always hope, yes. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. All right. Time for my rant. I saw a nice meme on Facebook recently. It kind of went like this. What would you think you found out that the inhabitants of the newly found planet Kepler-452b were killing each other over who had the best imaginary friend? Congratulations, you are now looking at the world in its reality. What will generations 200 years in the future think of the events in the past few years? But what scares me the most is that quick knee-jerk reaction that seems we seem to be having. One of seeking refuge in Christianity, bow their head in prayer while reloading their gun. These same quote-unquote peaceful religious people don't seem to realize that like, group like ISIS are exactly hoping for that. A holy war. A final war. The method of spreading their belief by the sword is what made Islam and Christianity. The powerhouses that are today and what that seems after, after hundreds of years, millions of deaths, we haven't learned too much. The game is even more dangerous today because we've learned to create weapons of capable of destroying the world without first getting over the mental illness of wishing for Armageddon. But hope isn't lost. Amongst the multitude of voices calling for revenge, war, or fearful of immigrants, the voice of secularism can also be heard. The voice is boldly calling out that the problem isn't here isn't cultural, it's religion. Religion is the problem because it gives permission to commit horrible deeds which would otherwise be unjustified. And for that reason, amongst hundreds more, religion must die for mankind to move forward. It's high time to leave the Bronze Age belief of a divine creator with a favorite people and agenda into a superstitious past where it belongs. So I urge you and thank you for voicing your opinion on this. The voice of reason is becoming louder and louder and is not so easily drowned by the cries of martyrdom anymore. And that, despite the horrors of terrorism, should make you optimistic about our future. Our secular God-free future because with guns you'll kill terrorists. But with education, you'll kill terrorism. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. I want to thank all my guests that were here tonight. Thank you to Jim. Thank you to <laughs> to, to John and Chris and Nancy, of course, as usual. Um, and I want to remind people that we still have that uh, little contest going on. If you send us uh, the word epistemology, that's the secret password, epistemology, we will send you a copy. We have three copies of the book, A Manual for Creating Atheist. Coming up in the next couple of shows, well, actually, we're going to do a, finally our show about the myth of sexual addiction with Del Rey. And after that, we're heading to the holiday season. And I want to remind you guys as well that uh, November is a month for stomach cancer awareness for our friend Tanya there. So you can always reach us at leftofthevalley.com. You can reach us on Facebook. You can go to Block Talk. If you sign up on Block Talk, they will send you an email telling you when we are about to air. And we're also on Spreaker. On behalf of everybody else here today, I want to thank you so much for listening. Until next time.
you. Is there riches? Is there glory?